just how big an issue is water damage to buildings in Australia and what are the possible health issues from mould biotoxin exposure like chronic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS. Join Amy Skilton in her comprehensive course Unraveling SIRS WDB which will give you the appropriate skills to both screen and manage your patients on their return journey to wellness. For more information and to register, please go to bioceuticals.com.au and click on the Education tab. FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Audra Starkey, who's a clinically trained nutritionist, accredited trainer, shift work veteran, and host of the Healthy Shift Worker podcast. After more than 20 years in the aviation industry, Audra decided to switch careers and complete a Bachelor of Health Science, majoring in nutritional medicine, to gain a better understanding of some of the impacts of circadian rhythm disruption and poor dietary habits and what they have on our health. Welcome to FX Medicine Audra. How are you? Hi, Andrew. Thanks very much um, for having me. It's our pleasure. Now, I've got to ask first, we talk about shift work and we think we know exactly what it is, but what exactly is shift work apart from daytime work? Yeah, I think formally it's regarded as, you know, anything working outside hours of, you know, between 8am and and 6pm. But I think, you know, a lot of people these days are more and more people are starting to do that to, you know, kind of work outside the the, the regular, you know, nine to five that we've sort of come to to know uh, over the years. And, And of course, it, it definitely applies to a, a lot of different industries, you know, manufacturing, transportation, the healthcare industry. Uh, it, it really does form quite a lot of people. And I know that there's, I think, close to just here in Australia, Andrew, there's almost 2 million people uh, that do do actually work, um, shift work. So it, it's it's quite a lot of um, the population. And, and I know that there are uh, definitely in, in need of some um, and help um, and guidance uh, to keep themselves healthy, that's for sure. Absolutely. I mean, being a, a, an RN, the thing that really killed me energy-wise was it wasn't so much shift work per se, it was the way that the shifts were structured. Whereas, mm-hmm. for instance, my sister is a psych nurse and they had, wow, I mean, they had like longer shifts but boy, were they looked after with their energy, i.e. with time off. So it's really interesting that even within the same overarching profession, there's vast differences in how shifts are managed. So I guess the next question is, what are the health impacts of shift working? And, and it seems obvious, but it's it's far deeper than what the surface suggests. Mm, yeah, and I agree. And just kind of getting back to what you just mentioned, um, then, Andrew, I totally agree with it. Not all shift-working workplaces are the same. Uh, that is definitely for sure, depending on your occupation, or even it might be the same industry, but depends on what state that you're in uh, amongst the nursing profession, yeah. for example. So it can, yeah, it can definitely um, be vastly, vastly different. But I suppose, you know, when it comes to, you know, some of the chronic health conditions that shift workers are renowned for, it's because of that 
circadian disruption and the sleep restriction, um, you know, obviously leads to many metabolic and chronic health conditions such as insulin resistance, you know, type 2 diabetes, obesity, uh, cardiovascular disease, gastrointestinal complaints, you know, certain cancers. It's certainly not rosy, uh, you know, when you dive kind of into the research, but I think it's vitally important that we make shift workers um, and organisations aware of that because I think a lot of uh, corporations just immediately think of, oh, well, fatigue. You know, we need to help yes. manage fatigue side of things, yeah. right? But it's way deeper than that. It's it's not just about fatigue uh, at all. There's also, it's almost an assumption when we talk about shift work and we're thinking about a person having shift work, we're thinking about them in one spot having the shift work. But even from your experience, you're moving across the world. You're moving through different time zones. So it's not just the time in between working shifts, but it's also the time that that shift starts in a different country and and all of these weird impacts. I mean, there's so much going on there. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, although in saying that, Andrew, I, I was I didn't fly um, in the aviation industry. I was based um, at the airport, so right. I didn't quite <laughs> those those. But uh, relative, <laughs> you know, for for the you know cabin crew and 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 oh, flight staff, yeah, absolutely, one hundred percent. And it's actually really interesting um, you bring that up because Qantas at the moment are, are currently undergoing um, some major research studies. Um, called Project Sunrise, I think, um, in regards to their, they're trying to, um, you know, fly from Sydney to, to London oh, yes. kind of direct. Yeah, 19 hours. So they're doing a lot of research at the moment to, you know, looking at the light exposure and the timing of when we eat because those two are very powerful um triggers of the circadian rhythm uh, so it's, it's wonderful that they are actually looking at doing that because even I was talking to a lady that just flew back um, out of Thailand the other day and it was a midnight flight and she said Audra it was it was crazy because we got on the flight at midnight and within like an hour and a half they're serving us this really big meal mm. like when everyone's really wanting to sleep mm. so um yeah, it's kind of not the ideal time to be giving that food out, which is, yeah, so kudos to Qantas, I have to say, the previous employer of mine, they really are um, looking at helping to reduce some of those um, deleterious effects of jet lag, which I think every single listener will be able to relate to. So let's talk about these major impacts. Um, You mentioned insulin resistance, and that in part would be due to you know, eating at weird hours and things like that. But let's go deeper into that. What are the major health effects that affect shift workers? Yeah, so, and I guess I remember, you know, when I was at uni and I was just so absorbed, um, so I went and studied nutrition, but I was so absorbed into shift work health and wellbeing and just reading so many journal articles and and clinical trials that had been done on shift work. And, yeah, these these, um, conditions kept, kind of kept coming up and almost, and I, to be honest, because this is a bit of a personal thing, I, I kind of became a little bit emotional about it because I thought this is crazy. Like we're not told about this. We're not given this awareness. No, you are not taught about it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and I think um, so just before going down that track, I, I wanted to, I guess, highlight the fact that even just because these uh, clinical trials of shift workers have come up and they've they've highlighted these chronic health conditions, I would sort of step back and think, well, okay, there is that certain amount that 
is going to happen purely because we're up at, at, at I like to call stupid o'clock, a, a coin's <laughs> attempt by one of my clients, which I think is very relevant. Um, you know, are these people that they're doing these studies on, have they received any educational support on how to take care of their health? that maybe would have altered perhaps the outcomes of a lot of this research. And I firmly believe that, yes, that, that kind of would um, would be the case. So I just wanted to kind of put that into into kind of play because I'm, I guess I'm all about sort of stepping back and kind of trying to reverse engineer things a little bit um, to, to kind of help to mitigate some of these chronic health conditions. But, yeah, for sure, um, you know, the, the insulin resistance um, and the prediabetes and the type 2 diabetes is very, um, unfortunately, very kind of prevalent amongst the shift working population and it can be down to a lot of, uh, you know, a myriad of factors, uh, of course, and the the timing of when we eat, which we know we're going to get into uh, more about shortly, definitely plays a big role. But, of course, you know, what we're eating, we know, and, and Andrew, you will know yourself being, you know, the shift worker, you, you know that we get stuck in this vicious cycle because of our disruption to our, you know, sleep-wake cycle that we feel so tired all the time that you know we don't always make the healthiest food choice yeah yeah well, so, i was also i'm very concerned like i have questioned international flight staff about you know has anybody taught them and indeed what you say is nobody ever i i was surprised particularly on one flight there was um one nurse one teacher and somebody that had done um pre-med so uh, so yeah. we're talking about medically trained individuals and nobody had talked to them about or ha had exposed them to any research pertaining to illnesses of shift work and circadian rhythm disruption, things like that. Not at any time. It was really interesting just reading recently how, you know, it seems to be now set in, in stone that there's an increase in, was it breast cancer and, and melanoma, strangely, from yeah, flight staff? Yeah, I saw that. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, but in saying that, though, uh, Andrew, when we think about it, you know, shipworking companies, what what are the one of the biggest expenses that they have to endure is high sick leave, right? So, and But poor sleep is one of the biggest causes of it, you know, like debilitates our immune system. So if we can actually, again, reverse engineer things a little bit and start teaching people through, you know, better sleep and lifestyle habits how to actually improve their sleep, Along with, there of course needs to be uh, changes within the organisation um, in regards to rostering. I mean, that the R word is a, definitely a yes. hot of debate. Yes. Um, but if we can you know, think about, if yes, it will cost that initial financial thing to start educating shift workers, but in the long run, potentially it's going to cost save them millions of dollars because it's providing that education uh, and support for people right from the get go and. And the, the sleep thing is is a huge thing that um, actually in all of my work I actually put it first before nutrition because I think um, you know I kind of realised I guess get frustrated there for a while you know even working with clients that there's kind of no point teeth telling somebody you know you should be eating that you should be doing this etc cetera, etc cetera. if their eyes are hanging out their head they're so tired they're not going <laughs> to want to do it yeah. You know, so we've kind of got to work. Um, I always kind of felt when I was working nutrition first, I felt like I was putting the cart before the horse. So I thought I'm going to need to, I need to flip this around a little bit when I'm working with my clients. I need to focus on their sleep first because I know if I can improve their sleep, they're more likely to eat better, which, you know, has that flow and effect to everything. You know, it used to ponder me or it used to fascinate me a little bit, Andrew, because, you know, when um, somebody works nine to five, 
they say, or even if they worked, they finished at, at six o'clock at night. They actually don't come back to work until about sixteen hours later. Yeah. So, and that they've already had a really nice bit of sleep. So yet, some of the shift workers have these eight-hour minimum turnarounds. You know, even even ten is not enough in yep. my book. Yeah. But that's like asking someone who works nine to five, say if they finish work at six and asking them to come back at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. Yes. Like, it just would not happen. Um, so I, d- I never kind of have understood where this minimum turnaround of such a small minimum turnaround kind of comes into play when we're kind of attacking those that are the most vulnerable um, with sleep, kind of making it worse. Yes, and a flow-on for that with, say, the medical staff, when you're talking about doing a late shift which ends at 11 and then you're on yeah. an early shift which starts at 7, that's an eight-hour break. And as you say, within that eight hours you have to clock off, get home, wind down, get ready for bed, get into bed, go to sleep, then wake up, get ready for work, go to work. So there's you don't get eight hours sleep. You'll get five, four. And when you think about the flow-on effects of that, well, that's the patience. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of um, it's a, it's a kind of crazy, crazy world. And I'm, yeah, I guess it's kind of why I'm sort of doing this. I am trying to kind of raise the much-needed awareness for both. It's a, it's a 50-50 responsibility of the employee and the employer. We've got to start doing things differently because, you know, given, you know, it, it's the underlying factor is that that circadian rhythm disruption, the the sleep deprivation in, in its impact on our immune system, um, you know, our mental health and well-being, as I you know, alluded to you before, you know, we're more likely, you know, to um, face cardiovascular diseases and stuff. It's not just about fatigue anymore. Mm, no. It's big, yeah. Far deeper. So can shift workers indeed be healthy? And and then what do they have to do to, to be that? Huh, it's a million-dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness, yeah. Well, I suppose, of course, I do believe it. This is kind of why I do what I do. But, you know, a caveat there is, of course, and we alluded to before, um, Andrew, it really it depends a lot on the actual job, what you do, where you work, who you'll work for, even the, from the local management perspective of how, uh, you know, open they are to actually taking, you know, being taking care of their staff health. I think if you are in that environment from the get-go, um, then it's obviously you've got a lot better chance of, of um, being a healthy shift worker. But as I said before, to me, absolutely everything comes back to um, education and I can say just myself over 20 years of working in shift work what frustrated me a little bit over the time is that each time I would perhaps go and see a healthcare practitioner the words that I would always hear back is well you should just quit your job and that kind of frustrated me uh, you know and I even though I'm now a health practitioner and I, I get it I understand why they're saying it but it's kind of not helpful um, and also I loved my job and I know that there are a lot of people out there in industry you know whether it's a police nursing paramedic veterinary they absolutely love their job yeah. just give us some give us some guidance on, on how to stay healthy or to how or to at least mitigate some of those chronic health conditions um, that I alluded to before and, and I've really lost count now of how many people who have actually come up to me after I've delivered a seminar and said to me Audra where were you 20 years ago when right. I needed you yeah or I even had a lady say to me, where were you 40 years ago when I needed Oh, wow. I had to say, well, I was probably only about five years old, so I wouldn't have been very helpful. 
I've got to say, I've got to say to that point that you made about a health practitioner saying, just quit your job. It doesn't solve the problem because there's another person who will take that job. But we need shift workers too. Like, yeah. you know, we need people. The world would literally stop spinning if we didn't have, you know, shift workers. Absolutely. And we need- somebody to be able to call at two o'clock in the morning if we've got an emergency, which I hope would never happen to anyone listening. But we need somebody there. And I think we, because of that, we need to be doing whatever we physically possibly can to help them take care of their own health because now a lot of them also are in the, the healthcare um, setting themselves. And forgive me for concentrating a little bit on the healthcare setting because it is you know, perhaps a little bit of a penchant that I have, but, you know, the ability in some instances to get at least some rest. So there was, yeah. you know, if we, on some night, depending on the work, on, on how heavy the workload was, obviously that's going to depend entirely on which ward you're on, what type of work you're doing, but there would be the, the time to catch a nap. Is this of benefit or does it actually create more problems, these little mini naps? Oh yeah, I'm definitely the the benefit is always is is there, but is it practical in most workplaces? That's you know that's kind of the thing. And I know um, the likes of Google and Apple, they have these napping pods that they've brought into the work workplace for their staff to literally uh, have somewhere where they can actually nap, and it's it's very well done, it's very well designed to block out all light wow. noise. Um, it's even got a timer on it for about 20 minutes <laughs> so that after, you know, 20 minutes that they, they kind of have to kind of get up. And, and if it was me, I would, um, I'd love to see a napping pod placed in every shift working workplace everywhere. Um, but again, it sort of depends on the on the workplace. I was doing some work for some um, 24-7 veterinary clinics just fairly recently and, mm. and for them it's not practical because, uh, again, I suppose this comes back to a staffing issue really, doesn't it? Is yeah, that they, yeah. They needed to be awake and alert and observant of their patients. That's right. Um, yeah, that's where it gets a little bit. But, hey, if they could get a, a bit of a rotating roster of at least one person, um, it just um, it just kind of tops up that sleep tank basically because, you know, you're, you're experiencing that you've got those two things that's happening with sleep. Your, your, your sleep drive and your sleep rhythm are both mixed up because you've got the sleep drive where you've got that build-up of adenosine in the brain to help you to kind of, you know, put you to sleep. But then if you're awake at, you know, 3 o'clock in the morning, you've got that circadian um, kind of misalignment. You've got those two things attacking at the same time. Um, But at least by, yeah, having that that little bit of a nap, uh, you're doing what the body instinctively wants to do is sleep during the night. Um, but not too long, of course, otherwise you wake up drowsy and, yeah. Yeah. Is there any uh, length of time that's best for a siesta? And is there any research showing what long-term effects of having a siesta is? Yeah, I think um, what i found when I've done a lot of the research, uh, Andrew, is that nothing's really specifically necessarily been done on shift workers. Right. Um, you know what I mean? Which is which is really... Uh, crazy because they're kind of the ones that are um, the most, you know, vulnerable yeah. um, to, to to that. But I do know that um, uh, some of the studies that have been done um, down in Adelaide and and through Monash University and that in the in the sleep um, labs down there is that they they have 
um, you know, looked at the the different timings and 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 so forth of um, I think it was people in the United States and the train train industry, I think, about different types of um, lengths and so and so forth. But the thing is, you you don't want to go too deep, as I said before, because you end up you know going deeper and deeper into that sleep cycle, which yep. is around you know ninety minutes. Ideally, ideally, even a ninety minute nap would prove to be more beneficial because you're going through that whole sleep cycle. But if you're sort of taking it too much longer and then you're waking up in the middle of the sleep cycle, then you end up being more drowsier um, and it takes a little bit while to kind of come out of that, um, yeah, that, that sort of drowsiness, which is, alert, you know, alertness is, is key, um, particularly if you're driving equipment uh, and taking care of patients um, and so forth. So when you're prioritising your management plan, your care of patients who come in, what do you focus on first? Oh, sleep. 100%. Just, just sleep. <laughs> not well, not just sleep, but it's it's where I start. Yeah, it's you know we can you know there's so much in the health and wellbeing space. Um, you know, and it's all about nutrition and exercise, and nutrition and exercise, and nutrition and exercise, which is wonderful, and it's all very relevant. Um, but sleep is kind of even more important. And and interestingly, even um, earlier in this year, the Australian government actually released a report, uh, ironically called Bedtime Reading. Um, they did a, um, a research into sleep health awareness within Australia with a 171-page document. Um, so bound to put anybody listening to sleep if you're wanting to find a sleep-inducing <laughs> strategy, um, get them to read this actual document. Um, but they've you know, just released a lot of the findings um, right. in, in, in that we are – we are not only in a world that is, um, you know, I think the, even the World Health Organization has stated we are living in a world obesity epidemic, um, a world a type two diabetes epidemic, but we're also living in a world sleep loss epidemic, and we can't last long without um, air. We can't last long much longer without water, and then really sleep kind of forms in next in the ladder mm-hmm. because we, um, you know, and I'll, my best way to describe this really. Uh, is that if you were to go without um, eating for two or three days, which I'm kind of not recommending as a new diet for 2020, um, that's for no. sure. But if we weren't to eat for two to three days, after that time we would feel tired, lethargic, we'd lose a bit of muscle mass. Uh, but generally speaking, you know what, Andrew, you know that you're going to feel okay. But if we were to not sleep for two to three days, we would barely be able to function and we'd begin to hallucinate. So that really gives us a huge clue as to just how critically important sleep is hmm. um, when it comes to our, our health and well-being. And we know shift workers, as we've already said, they they do. They experience that, that sleep deprivation, that sleep disruption uh, and so forth. But I do know from working with, you know, clients, the shift workers, that they're not always prioritising their sleep. They're not, incredibly, they're not prioritising their sleep um, and also they might be either knowingly or unknowingly doing self-sabotaging behaviours that is making their sleep um, disruption even worse. And I think we need to attack that first. I I remember, um, you know, I'm really reluctant to kind of prescribe a, a client with magnesium if I know that they are staying awake to 11 o'clock at night on their on their iPad. Like, you're kind of throwing away yeah. that hard, hard-earned cash on, on supplements if you're not doing this as well. So um, I suppose that's where I kind of come at that sort of approach from all angles to kind of get the best patient outcomes. But 
absolutely sleep is um, foremost. I've even kind of developed a better sleep program for shift workers for that very reason. Yeah. Because it's it's critically important. We know that we you know we we feel so much better and we function much better when we've had a better night's sleep and restful sleep. So my next question's mm. got to do with how people are fearful of getting sleep, therefore it prevents sleep. How mm. often is this the major factor? The worry of sleeplessness, the worry of not getting rest. Oh, I think it's a huge one. Yeah, they get stuck in that sort of anxiety, insomnia feedback loop uh, where, um, yeah, they, they know that they've got to get up at, you know, three o'clock in the morning or whatever and they're, but they're panicking because they're, they're kind of counting back the clock, <laughs> thinking, mm. oh, my gosh, it's, you know, five hours to go. I've only got four hours to go. It is huge. And I think, uh, and I'm glad that you kind of mentioned that really, Andrew, because I think that really um, is one of the big drivers kind of for most people in this crazy, stressful um, world that we kind of live in. A lot of people have so much on their plate um, that they are going to bed feeling very anxious and, and wired, you know, we're tired and wired. So our nervous systems are just still on high alert, which is definitely going to prevent anybody from being able to sleep because you know, if we're not, if our brain's getting that signal, feeling that we're not safe, um, then it's not going to be able to, uh, you know, start to kind of wind down and and you know produce melatonin and so forth to enable the the body to be able to sleep. So yeah, the anxiety thing um, is huge, um, but again, I guess that's where we need as practitioners to really start kind of digging deep as to what's the cause of the anxiety. Um, you know, what is specifically that they are worrying about and, and, you know, obviously refer on if required to the um, to those um, that kind of deal or specialise uh, in this area because it's, um, yeah, it, it's, it's very big. It's a very real thing. And what about with sleep deficit once we're in that horrible quandary? How long does it take to be able to pay back the sleep deficit? Uh, actually, it's interesting because I um, just recently heard about a study where they were working on adolescents that, yeah, that were sort of not having having a lot of trouble sleeping and they were staying up, you know, like couldn't fall asleep till about one o'clock in the morning um, and so forth. And But what they ended up doing is they actually ended up taking them camping for two weeks. So, right. of course. <laughs> Nighttime. <laughs> yeah. So what obviously, you know, putting them in that, that natural cycle where, you know, where they're, they're not on their iPads, they're not, you know, being exposed to the blue light, which adolescents do, um, they were forced into the environment where they were governed by the light and the, the darkness. And mm. so then they were finding that they were getting sleepy by 9pm and they were waking up at around 6. So That's really interesting. Yeah. So it can be done, but the thing is, in today's world, we are not in living in that perfect camping kind of environment, are we? We are, we've got this light toxicity going on, light at the wrong times and not enough light at the right times and so forth, which is kind of, um, yeah, messing, uh, messing with their circadian rhythms. But talking about the one night of sleep deprivation, there was recently a study um, that showed well, it's not that recent, but it was um, showing that just one night of sleep deprivation causes a 40% reduction in our ability to handle glucose. And wow. I remember, yeah, and I remember reading this thinking, oh, my Lord, like this is 
again, just having all these epiphany moments of, okay, well, she's glucosaprone to, as we said before, you know, the pre-diabetes, insulin resistance and stuff. Why is this? What's going on? And when you kind of read um, uh, research like that, it, it makes sense, doesn't it? If mm. that's happening and then we're, we're putting on top of, you know, eating the lollies and the chips and the pizza and that at 3 o'clock in the morning, um, it's no Double wonder. Whammy. It's no wonder that over time shift workers can be prone to developing those chronic conditions. So I think we need to, we've got to get that out there and tell people this. So at least arm them with the knowledge so that they can then make better choices and decisions um, around what they're doing instead of just um, them not knowing it. You know, they're, we're, we're adults. We should be able to make our own decisions. But without that knowledge behind us, uh, we're, we're not likely to kind of change our behaviour. With regards to eating, you, you know, you mentioned that 40% reduction in glucose handling and how we tend to, you know, eat the wrong things at the wrong time. How, so chrononutrition. Um, what is this and how do we best handle this, particularly when you've got those extremely powerful urges of hunger driving you? Mm, at two o'clock in the morning? Yes, at the wrong time. <laughs> yeah. Well, chrononutrition kind of falls under the area of science um, called chronobiology, which is all about timings and cycles or rhythms. Um, so, you know, certain things like our body temperature and melatonin all designed to kind of get um, released at certain times of the day and night, which is a good thing because if it all kind of happened at once, it would be chaos. Yes. Um, <laughs> But the term, it, it's good that it's really starting to get more and more, um, I guess, awareness around it. But the term was originally coined um, by a French doctor back in the mid-1980s uh, called Dr. Alan Delabois. Um, and it is, it's based around um, the body's uh, biological clock or, or our or our rhythms. And so the more we are in alignment with our circadian rhythm, the healthier we will be. It really, um, it kind of comes down to that. Chrononutrition, though, kind of um, applies to not so much what we're eating, but when we're eating. And I, just to put this into context a little bit, uh, Andrew, is how I kind of stumbled on this even myself. Uh, I was in my last year at um, studying nutrition um, up here in Brisbane at Endeavour College. And, you know, one of the, each time we had a client coming in, we had to, you know, get them to fill out the food diary, you know, you know, what they're eating for breakfast, lunch, and dinner and stuff. And I would have clients that, you know, kind of actually eating fairly reasonably well, um, but they were still struggling with their weight. So I decided to kind of mix things up a little bit and I started to ask them a different question when they were eating. Right. That opened a whole different Pandora's box for me, I suppose, and what really led me down the path to um, dive deeply into this area of chrononutrition because it's not so much relevant for people that work Monday to Friday, nine to five, that eat at the same time and so forth. But for shift workers, this is crucial, absolutely crucial. Um, you know, even, um, you know, for example, your postprandial glucose response um, is actually much worse when you're eating, say, at 3 a.m. than if you've been having that same meal during the day. So basically what, you know, when we eat during the night versus the day and how is how we metabolise it, it is drastically different. Um, so this is, again, this is why it's um, crucial that um, shift workers are aware and have an understanding of, you know, what is a circadian rhythm? What is it? 
what happens, um, you know, when I eat at this particular time? Because we know, um, you know, our appetite regulating hormones, you, you were alluding to before, uh, Andrew, about having that sugar craving at, you know, two o'clock in the morning. It's usually because our appetite regulating hormones are totally being skewed all over the place. Mm. Now, we know the studies have shown that leptin can, you know, drop by about 20%, um, which is that signal that tells us that we're feeling full versus, versus ghrelin um, increases, which can make us kind of overeat and, Hungry, yeah. and overeat on all the wrong things. So to help your answer your original question of the how do you stop the, the starving hunger cravings, well, what I firstly do recommend for my clients straight away is that to have a glass, again, I'm getting back to really basics here, but having that glass of water first, because a lot of the time that hunger and thirst really confuses it, have a glass of water first and then have something that contains proteins um, and healthy fat so that it's going to help to stabilise your blood sugar, increase that satiety, that feeling of fullness, so that you're less likely to want to go for the donut Um which is obviously the highly refined and, and processed sugars, which your brain is needing. But, um, you know, we know that that's um, certainly not going to be good for your health and well-being. As I said, we were alluding to before about the, um, you know, body's ability to handle glucose. Our pancreas, incredibly, that um, a beta cell function is completely different at night. Like the pancreas does not function in the same capacity as it does during the daytime. and Again, I keep harping on this. I just, when I was reading it, thinking this is so important. I wish somebody had told me about this many years ago because it could have changed my eating behaviour. Um, and, and maybe, again, what I'm trying to do is to help people not become, um, eventually um, develop the chronic health conditions of, of type 2 diabetes. Because I know I've had patients that have, ha- that have and I just think if they'd just been given this um advice and and recommendations and education beforehand could I even potentially help one person well great um, but I, I I think we can do a much bigger job on that by by getting it more out to um, you know flowing into the the workplaces and in um, yeah nursing degree training being built into the curriculum yeah um, it's yeah, it's so important. Audra, what about this theory of taking a small amount of carbohydrates just before going to bed to boost serotonin? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's um, that's true. That has um, one would have to be careful about the type of carbs. I would imagine you mentioned the donut before. Hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, how much exactly when? Um, but that's a, a, a good point to raise because I've found that a lot of um, my night shifting clients, a lot of them would um, they do their night shift and they would just uh, go home and you know have a shower and go straight to bed, which I totally get it. That's all what we feel like doing. But they would not have anything to eat. Um, but that can then, um, you know, lead to that disruption of your blood sugar to a point where our blood sugar drops so much that it um, fires up our stress response and it can be enough to wake people up. So what we want to do is to help um, in- increase, um, improve that sleep by having that little kind of um, snack or meal beforehand just before sleep. So, for example, let's say um, instead of a plain bowl of, of porridge, which is pure carbohydrate, it's going to give you that high sugar spike on its own. But I get my clients to just chuck things on it, like you know, chia seeds, Greek yogurt, um, you know, some just kind of healthy fats and proteins that will help to 
to stabilise that blood sugar and it, it makes a huge difference to their sleep. Huge. So making it like a, uh, it might have the, the carbohydrate content, but it's a low glycemic index load. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, two scenarios I want to pose to you. And the first one is uh, when you've got regular but inverted shift work, i.e. you work nights all the time. Do you change their chrononutrition so that their daytime eating is actually during the hours of nighttime? And then nighttime behavior, their sleep, which has to happen at some time, is during the daytime? Or do you still use the Earth's sun and nighttime as the sort of gauge of the biological clock? Yeah, so I remember um, hearing once that um, I think somebody was recommending, you know, while I was at uni, uh, to recommend to a shift working client just to flip their meals, you know, so having their, their big meal at at midnight, for example, um, as opposed, you know, as if they were having the it's reverse. Never of sat right with me. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I agree a thousand percent, Andrew. And I do. When I heard that, I went, "You know, that 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 just does not, yeah, sit with me as well." And I suppose it's kind of what led me down to the path. No, I will always just try and. Um, um, as I alluded to before, you know, the more we are in alignment with our circadian rhythms, the healthier we will be. So we know that, um, so we need to be in training those peripheral tissue clocks, the, the clock genes in our peripheral tissues, which is really our gut, our gastrointestinal tract, um, to coincide it with our circadian, um, sorry, SCN, our superchiasmic nucleus in the, in the brain to kind of make sure everything is as close and as sync as how it should be. Now, as shift workers, we are out of sync mm. to our circadian rhythms, but where we can, we need to be um, basically trying to do things to re-collaborate those circadian rhythms. So what I do is, yeah, I recommend them to just eat as closely. Um, so, for example, um, a night shift person would be to have their but have their sort of main meal, dinner, what they would normally be doing um, before they go into their night shift because it's going to be um, usually um, big enough that you know, got your, your um, proteins, your healthy fats and, and um, complex carbohydrates. It will give you enough energy to kind of get through your shift, help you to help you to stabilise that blood sugar so that you're less likely to get the cravings. I'm not saying that you won't get the cravings no. at 2 o'clock in the morning, um, but it's going to sustain you for much longer. And then when you come home from night shift, as I said, have that um, – small something to eat just before bed, again, to help you to, um, you know, be able to kind of sleep um, through all the way through. Actually, and I might digress slightly there, Andrew, just reminded me of something that there was a study um, that was actually eventually published in the Nurses and Midwifery Journal, mm. actually, you probably did see it, uh, where they looked at um, driver alertness of somebody that was doing a night shift. Was it, yeah, basically it was 0.08 or something. It, it had the equivalence of 0.08 alcohol. Is that right? Oh, no, that was, um, no, no, it was what they were doing is that they were assessing driver alertness from somebody. Um, they looked at eating during the night. So what they got people to do is either have a big meal during the night, a small, like a oh, snack during the night, right. or, not, or not eat at all. And then after doing that night shift, they put them in a 40-minute driving simulator and they got them to, yeah, and so they just looked at their driving and what they found is that those that had the larger meal during the night had more aggressive driving behaviour. Oh, really? 
more likely to swerve into different lanes. They were um, just not making better decisions, whereas those that had the snack, so just something small during the night, um, their the um, their alertness was much more prevalent. And even not eating was better than the big meal. And I think it's important for yeah. people to kind of know that. It sort of smacks of an inverted um, intermittent fasting. Yeah. Which, yeah. of course, is healthy. It's just that they're, they're doing it the wrong way around. <laughs> so, yeah. it, but it's well, really interesting. So what about things like favouring, say, soups, which are usually, <laughs> not always, but usually more nutrient-dense calorie poor um, mm-hmm. over, you know, the, the higher caloric type foods? Any work being done on that? What's your, what's your opinion? My number one recommendation for night shifters is actually to have soups during the night gotcha. because you're getting that liquid nutrition. Yep. It's um, reduced um, load on the gastrointestinal tract immediately. So, and again, we know that shift workers are prone to a lot of gastrointestinal complaints, peptic ulcer diseases and so forth over the long term. So having um, something um, small and nourishing, as you said, it's, they're usually quite nutrient-dense um, but less taxing on the gut. Um, and also our body temperature naturally drops around two yeah. and four o'clock in the morning yeah. based on our circadian cycle. And you would probably remember those times yes. in the working during that and you get that. You just put a shift. jumper on. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's the body doing what it's naturally designed to do. And it does that actually drops the body temperature to help keep you asleep, <laughs> which is wonderful if you're actually sleeping, not so much when you're at work. Um, so again, that's where a soup can actually be a great thing to kind of have. It's um, because you're kind of addressing um, both of those, um, both of those two things. Um, but again, I would always be recommending not a big meal, but just something small to kind of tie them over. Mm. And I know that you wouldn't relate to this, and my sister's a nurse, so I'm very much aware of what goes on in those um, nursing wards at, in mid, at midnight. You know, the takeaway pizzas get brought in, the Uber Eats, and, and so forth. Yeah. A comfort you got it. Yeah, um, it's a very real thing and I get it and I'm not saying to never do it again because, you know, night shift is hard and it kind of makes it a bit of fun, but just over the long term, it can be very problematic, um, obviously. Now, you've written a book about this. Is is all that we've talked about, all of these support measures for your patients and indeed practitioners' patients, is all of this sort of um, advice covered in your book? Yeah, so my book is um, obviously designed for shift workers to read. It's a very holistic kind of take on shift work, health and wellbeing. So what I do is I talk about the, the really the five biggest struggles that we face working shift work is that, that that kind of that sleep deprivation, which is a key driver behind the fatigue, the weight fluctuations, the stress, the anxiety, depression, a poor immune system, and also um, some of the impacts that it has on our relationships. So I have a very holistic take on on, on health, I suppose, and it's written very much in a, an easy-to-style read um, because not every shift worker has a science background. For me, myself, I didn't start reading journal articles until I started studying. Being in aviation, I have no need or desire to read a journal article, so I know that um, I needed to make sure that the people who are reading it are tired um, and a lot of us, we start reading a book and then we get shiny object syndrome and, you know, head off onto another <laughs> <laughs> kind of thing. Um, but I wanted to make sure that people who pick up and read this book read it from start to finish because everything in it is so um, vitally important. Um, it's it's not, as I said, it's not really in-depth because I want 
So I just share my story right at the beginning is to give a bit of a backstory as to, you know, some of the challenges I faced. Um, but also to kind of, I suppose, be that little bit of a, a big hug for them, to give them a bit of a, a um, you know, a sense of hope that, you know, there are things that they can do, which is why it kind of works beautifully, as I suppose, as a compliment um, to for health practitioners. It's just something extra to kind of give their clients yep. um, as, as opposed to the, as in addition to the prescription um, that they will be giving um, to their their um, client. But I, it's... I, it's a book that I wish somebody hadn't given me 20 years ago, and I know that there's um, there's none around there. There's just there's nothing out there to sort of support the shift worker, and uh, so I suppose that's yeah, really why I wrote it. So, with regards to support references, if you like, for practitioners to look up to be able to show their yep. shift work patients, look, this is a real issue. What sort of things do you suggest? I, I, there was a couple I found. Um, ohnsrep.org.au was an Australian one, which described, you know, the issues of shift workers. What ones do you recommend? Oh, I've got over 100 references. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, we won't yeah. list those right now. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's very, it's very well referenced um, because, you know, we're uh, evidence-based practitioners. It's kind of kind of what we do. Um, you know, there's, there's sort of a mixture, but it all, uh, all the references I have to do with, as I was saying before, is is that that sleep. It's the, the um, you know, the weight fluctuations. Why, you know, chrononutrition, why eating during the night um, is, is, or chrononutrition, why this, is just vitally important that mm. we get it out there and, and let people um, aware of it. And but even you know, I, I delve off into something slightly different because um, shift workers we are prone to having relationship breakdowns, um, you know, marital stress and, and all that kind of stuff. But that a lot of that stems from the fact that and has been shown in in, a, in studies where the the less sleep we have it reduces our empathy and we're more likely to say and do things that we wouldn't ordinarily say salient so, point well done yes yeah so again having that awareness or letting somebody know that because occasionally that's fine but over over time that chronic um you know saying and doing things that we wouldn't ordinarily say and that's just that's obviously to our our family members that we know and love, but also our workmates as well. Yes. But at least having that awareness, okay, when you get home or whatever, maybe I won't get into this conversation. I'll have a sleep first. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then we'll take up this conversation after I've had a good night, after I have a, had a good, you know, sleep to sort of top up my sleep tank a bit. Um, because, yeah, I just, I suppose, as I've, as I've sort of highlighted before, it's a very personal thing um, and I generally am concerned about my, you know, the shift workers of the world because I get it, I know it, I've lived it, I've breathed it um, and it's just to kind of give them a resource out there, to, you know, that there is hope um, and, yeah. Maybe that's <laughs> where the ancestral saying came from about let me sleep on it. Um, we'll certainly put up some, some relevant references and, and some of the references from your book so that practitioners can get a taste of the book up on the FX Medicine website. But thank you so much, Audra, for taking us through this real issue, not just on, you know, some discomfort and some tiredness, fatigue, but we're talking about major health illnesses that are facing us on an economic level here. So thank you so much for taking us through these important issues today on FX Medicine. You're welcome, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me. It was lovely chatting. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook.
A lot of what we do here at FX Medicine is made possible by the generous collaboration of our many guests and contributors. We extend our heartfelt thanks as we continue our education of evidence-based complementary medicine.